Well, I have an interesting story I'll start with today. I originally thought this individual was a pastor that shared this story. I called him Pastor Josh. I don't know if he is a pastor now, so excuse me on that. But while in Malaysia, he writes this incredible story. While in Malaysia in November, this is Josh Stoneman, I had a weekend to rest and explore the city. I headed out with a, without a plan other than the goal to take pictures around the city and river. After winding through huge markets in different areas of the city, I had finally made it to the river. Sporting a nearby bench, I sat down for a little while to scope out the surroundings. Shortly after sitting on a small bench, a young woman came and sat next to me. I could see from her poorly done makeup and the way she dressed that I was probably a customer to her. I I suspected her business was prostitution. She introduced herself as Annette. I told her my name, and as we sat in silence, my heart began to break. My question, of course, how are you today, broke the silence. Although she didn't speak fluent English, she spoke it well enough for small talk. We spent a few minutes talking about the river and the city, small things like that. Finally, I asked what she did for work. She explained in broken English that her job was to have sex. When she said this, I could tell she was partly ashamed to admit this and also partly wondering if I was interested. I told her, I am not a customer, I am a friend. By looking at her somewhat anorexic figure, I assumed she didn't eat often, so I asked her what restaurants she recommended in the area. After she said the name of a place within sight, I offered to buy her lunch. She agreed, and I wondered what I had just done. This woman's appearance made it obvious about her trade. What would people think? As we walked, I looked to see the faces turned to watch her. Other women looked at her in disapproving ways. Men looked at her and then me as if knowing what was going on. Out of insecurity of the situation, I explained to her again that I was not a customer and did not want anything in return. She said she understood, so I let the situation play out. When we sat down at this Riverside restaurant, I could tell from her, poor, from her body language she felt out of place. She was uncomfortable. Have people taken you out to eat before, I asked. She said, no, never. While waiting up for our food, I got to know Annette a little better. She is 25 and travels back and forth from the rice fields for work. It's the off season, however, so she doesn't have any work back at her home. Meanwhile, she has to find an alternative to afford things like food, water, and a place to live. I asked her a little bit more about her work. She explained, I don't like my work, but what can I do? The way she said this made it obvious that she didn't want to do this work at all. But she couldn't figure out another way. When she locked eyes with me and said, you are a good man, I took the opportunity to share the gospel with her. I tried my best to explain it in a way that she would understand, but the language barrier was strong. I tried to make sure that she at least knew the name Jesus. After that, I knew the best thing I could do was show Jesus to her. Stories like this really do grab our attention and we can almost feel the tension in this moment because here is this man, I thought he was a pastor and I guess he's maybe not a pastor, just an everyday man, but here's this individual and he's sitting down and he's having lunch with this prostitute and you can just kind of feel the tension in this, his reputation maybe a little on the line in this moment and it's, it's really kind of an interesting thing and that last line kind of tells it all because he says, the best thing I could do is just show Jesus to her. And really, if you think about it, if you know Jesus from the scriptures, that's what he was doing. He really was. Jesus was the one who went out and uh, hung out with the drunkards and the tax collectors and the worst sinners and, yes, the prostitutes. And so here's this man being Jesus in a broken world, and in many ways, that's what we are called to do. Today, we're going to look at a very kind of a scandalous relationship in scripture 
At the end of the message, I'm going to show you a, a, a relationship we don't often think about as being as scandalous as it is. It's a surprising relationship we will get to at the very end of the message. Before that, we're going to go to the Old Testament and look at a, a, a story that shows us the amazing love and the scandalous grace of God. And, and it really is a powerful story that I don't know that I've ever really delved into. I've referenced it in the past. And we're not. I'm going to kind of tell the story and then go back and make some observations about the scandalous grace of God. This will be our final message in this series, Pursuit. We've been chasing after the heart of God now for the last, this will be the ninth week. And we've looked at a number of things. Last week we talked about what? Biblical justice in a social justice world. What does biblical justice look like? And uh, it's a pretty, pretty powerful thought. And the reality is we end that message talking about God's justice really employs grace and mercy and forgiveness and love. And so what a fitting thing today as we aim for the heart of God's heart today. I, I was going to put a picture up here and I f- didn't find one or forgot to find one, but a, a heart with a target in the minute because that's really where we're at today. This is the heart of God's very heart, the fact that he is a God of incredible grace. Here's the big idea. Here's the big idea today. The grace of God is far more scandalous than we often choose to believe. It's far more scandalous than we often choose to believe. We have a caption here at the church that we have used for a few years now, uncompromising truth plus radical grace equal abundant life. Those two things together. You want to know a life of abundance? It takes an uncompromising truth and it takes a radical grace. Today we'll talk about really a scandalous grace. And the thing is, when we talk about our name here, Robinson Grace Church, and grace is the middle of our name, right? It's, it's the core of our name. But the reality is this, is that we need to see grace as, more, as something that's more than just theological. We always say, we have to see it as practical, as in practice. But today, let's go even farther. Let's say, let's look at this idea of grace as not even just practical, but how about scandalous? How about to the, the point that it's a scandalous grace? And we're gonna talk about that. One of the things God would do in the Old Testament, is he would have the prophets sometimes do these really crazy visual sermon illustrations. Like, the the prophets would have a message from God to warn the Israelites, and then he would come along, and he would have them do something really wild and crazy. And I've shared a few examples in the past. Today kind of fits that narrative. Today is the story of uh, two individuals, a prophet and a prostitute. A prophet named Hosea and a prostitute named Gomer. Let me tell you his story, their, their story briefly and then we'll look at some practical application of this. But the heart of our ministry here is this idea of radical grace uh, leading to an abundant life. So a scandalous love story here. Let's look at it, Hosea chapter one. When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, go and marry a prostitute so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. So Hosea married Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she became pregnant and gave Hosea a son. So we see the story start out here that God basically tells Hosea, I want you to go find this prostitute. Don't have lunch with her for an hour and send her on her way. I want you to marry her. I want you to marry her and she's going to signify basically this lesson. It will signify the unfaithfulness of God. So marry a woman with a reputation who will be unfaithful. How about that? Pretty, pretty powerful sermon illustration here. Marry a woman. And um, again, understand 
why God wanted him to do this. So why does have him, God have him do this? God has him do this, well, uh, basically to, to show the unfaithfulness of Israel to God. God viewed his relationship with Israel like a marriage relationship. Uh, a lot of times people say today, we are the bride of Christ. I think really the more accurate thing in scripture is the Jewish nation was the bride of Christ. And so that's how God viewed his relationship with Israel. And when, here a couple examples, Ezekiel 16. And when I passed by again, I saw that you were old enough for love. God speaking to Israel. So I wrapped my cloak around you to cover your nakedness and declared my marriage vows. I made a covenant with you, says the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. And that was something they would actually do in that day. If you were going to marry someone, you'd say, I'll cover my cloak over you. And that was symbolic of a marriage covenant relationship. Chapter 20 of Ezekiel, here's Ezekiel again. Therefore, give the people of Israel this message from the sovereign Lord. Do you plan to pollute yourselves just as your ancestors did? Do you intend to keep prostituting yourselves by worshiping vile images? For when you offer gifts to them and give your little children to be burned as sacrifices, you continue to pollute yourselves with idols to this day. So here's the message in all of this, right? Israel goes out and worships other gods, false gods. They worship these idols, they aren't true to God, and so this, they repeatedly were unfaithful, and that's the message here, to show the unfaithfulness of Israel to God and how God felt about their unfaithfulness. Now, understand, this really did happen, okay? Understand that Hosea is a real prophet, Gomer's a real prostitute, they really do get married. This, there's really, this is not some, just some scandalous piece of creative literature. This is a real-life historical event that took place to prove a very powerful message. Now the story goes on. The story goes on and they have three children. Hosea chapter two, they will have these three children. Um, uh, Child number one is Jezreel. This signified that somewhat immediate judgment was coming. This is how he named each of his children. God had him name them each uniquely. Child number two was Loruma, not loved or no mercy, for I will no longer show love to the people of Israel or forgive them. And child number three, when it was born, was named Loami, not my people, for Israel is not my people, and I am not their God. So as the story continues, they have these three children. And each of these children are to signify a different aspect of God's relationship with Israel, how there will be this immediate judgment coming on them and how God is disowning them, kind of, in a sense. And um, pretty powerful, each of these names and what they signify in the relationship between God and Israel. Now, to understand one thing about the story, that this is just a temporary judgment, just a temporary uh, separation between God and, and Israel, Chapter 10 and 11 come along and um, each of these children representing a unique part of Israel's relationship with God. But then, chapter 1, verse 10. Yet the time will come when Israel's people will be like the sands of the seashore, too many to count. Then at the place where they were told, you are not my people, it will be said, you are children of the living God. Then the people of Judah and Israel will, will unite together. They will choose one leader for themselves, which is Christ, and they will return from exile together. What a day that will be, the day of Jezreel, when God will again plant his people in his land. And so this is just a temporary, uh, because God will be faithful to his eternal promise and his eternal kingdom. He will establish that kingdom, and one day Christ will rule over Israel. Just like he promised Abraham, that will happen. 
But in the immediate here, in the short-term immediate, God's saying, hey, you're unfaithful to me. There is judgment coming. We are going to be divorced. We're going to be separated. Because you are unfaithful and because you are not faithful to me. And he's, he's really trying to emphasize that with them. Now the story continues because what happens in the story of Hosea and Gomer? Well, they have these three kids and then what happens is that Gomer lives up to her reputation. And what do you think Gomer does? Well, Hosea chapter 2, verse 1, In that day you will call your brothers Ami, my people, and you will call your sisters Ruma, the ones I love. But now bring charges against Israel, your mother, for she is no longer my wife, and I am no longer her husband. Tell her to remove the prostitute's makeup from her face and the clothing that exposes her breasts. And basically what happens is Hosea runs off. I mean, Gomer runs off on Hosea. She runs away. She lives up to her reputation. She leaves him. And Hosea is left alone with these three kids. Now, if you read the story, though, you will find that even though she runs off, Hosea continues to love his wife. Continues to love his wife, Gomer. Loves her deeply. In the end, uh, so Gomer runs off on Hosea with another lover, rejecting his love, symbolizing what Israel did, of course, with God. But at the end of chapter 2 then, we have this very affirming verse. Chapter 2, verse 23. I will show love to those I called not loved. And to those I called not my people, I will say, now you are my people. And they will reply, you are our God. There's coming a time when God is going to reach out to Israel again. He's going to go after them. Even though they ran away, he's going to go after them. And he's going to love them. One day Israel will be reunited with their God, Yahweh. That day is coming. There's a day of hope out there. Even though they are unfaithful to him, he will go after them. Amazing story here. Amazing story indeed. And we see the scandalous nature of a prophet marrying a prostitute to symbolize the unfaithfulness of Israel to God. The the links God goes to to get his point across. Finally, the story is going to wind up for us in chapter 3. I mean, there's much more of Hosea but we find in Hosea chapter 3 that Hosea redeems Gomer from her slavery to sin. I don't think I have it on the screen, um, but let me read this to you. Hosea chapter 3. Then the Lord said to me, last instructions to Hosea, go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. So I bought her back. So what Hosea does, it goes out and he finds his wife on the slave auction block and he takes everything he has. He has $15. It takes, I think, 30 to purchase back the slave. He has $15. So he gives $15 and gives the barley. He gives everything he has and buys her off the slave auction block and takes her back home. She was his and now she is his a second time. And what he does is he comes and he, he purchases her, redeems her from her enslavement to sin. And it's really interesting because here is Gomer who runs off and she runs off with her lover and her lover promises all these great things. And all he does is use her and abuse her and eventually enslave her and puts her up for sale. Isn't it funny how the things of this world that so entice us and draw us away from God and then in the end we just find out that yeah, they're not what they promised to be. So much like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when they were there before that forbidden tree and and Satan lied to them and said, yeah, you just got to try the fruit of this tree. It's like no other fruit you ever had. And they ate the fruit and they were enslaved to sin. 
And the whole world's been enslaved to sin ever since, and that fruit was nothing what it promised to be. So Hodea redeems Gomer from her slavery to sin. Beautiful story. It reminds me of the gospel, and it reminds me of this verse in 1 Corinthians 6. Paul writes to you and me today, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. God has bought us. He has redeemed us. He has set us free, and we should be compelled to live for His glory. So let's walk through some of the scandalous nature of this incredible story we just looked at. Let's look at some of the scandalous nature of this story. How to embrace a scandalous grace. Number one, let me tell you this, grace, this kind of scandalous grace can be uncomfortable. It can be very uncomfortable. And I just think about that opening story of that man named Josh. I think that he was in a very uncomfortable situation there. It's like the Lord was leading him, but it was a very uncomfortable. Sometimes grace can be easy, sometimes not so much. Sometimes giving out God's grace can be very uncomfortable. Put yourself in the story of Hosea and Gomer. Put yourself in Hosea's shoes. He starts to date a prostitute. They go out to eat together. They're seen in public together. They finally have a marriage ceremony. They buy a house together. They have kids together. And all the time people are whispering, you know, boy, who did, who did, who did Hosea marry? He's the prophet of God and he married this prostitute and, and it had to be a bit of an uncomfortable thing. Here's the reality. Grace invites us into uncomfortable relationships that we would not normally forge. There's times when God's grace will compel us to get into a relationship we would not normally enter into and it can be an uncomfortable relationship. Think about it this way. We are the church, okay? Now, who is the church? The church is what? The body of Christ. We really are. We don't see ourselves enough this way. We're kind of getting this in our Sunday school class, walking as Jesus walked. It's a powerful study. But we don't see ourselves enough as to say we are Jesus in the world today. Jesus went to heaven. We are Jesus. We are the hands and the feet of Jesus in the world today. Now think about this. Here's a question. Who did Jesus hang out with when he was on earth? Think about who he hung out with. I mean, just stop and process that for a minute. He hung out with the sinners and the tax collectors, the, the, the worst of, of, of sinners of his day, um, the drunkards, and of course, yes, the prostitutes. That's who he hung out with. So much so that, that the religious people asked, why is he hanging out with those people? Now, understand that Jesus hung out with those who were the most broken. He did not hang out with those who were the farthest from God. The farthest from God were often the religious, the pious, the wealthy. The Bible often identifies them as being the farthest from God. These people were the, maybe the worst outright you know, external sinners in their behavior. And yet the reality is they were closer to God, more open to him. Let's ask the question this way. Who did Jesus hang out with? John chapter 5, 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Who did Jesus hang out with? Well, he hung out with the people that God put in front of him. That was his whole ministry. His whole ministry, his whole ministry agenda was shaped by what? By God. And, and whoever God put in front of him, that's who he ministered to and reached out to. Here's the uh, flip side of that question then. Who do we generally hang out with? 
Seriously, who do we hang, somebody want to answer? Who do we hang out with? Well, I think we hang out with each other a lot. We hang out with, with the people that are most like us. We hang out with the people that don't make us uncomfortable and we don't make them uncomfortable. Generally. Generally, that's kind of who we hang out with when you think about it. That's the reality. You know, if Jesus was alive today, he would probably not be in most of the places we are. And he wouldn't be at the mega churches. And he wouldn't find the influential people and the powerful people. And he would probably be down on Division Street in Grand Rapids hanging out with the, the abused and the marginalized and those that were considered the outcasts of society. That really would seem to be more of the reality. We tend to hang out with each other. We're just more comfortable there. And, and, and this reality is, is that sometimes we actually make other people uncomfortable too. Think in this story, Hosea's uncomfortable, but I bet you Gomer's uncomfortable. That opening story I read, the woman sat there and Josh said this woman seemed a little uncomfortable. It's true. Grace invites us into relationships sometimes that we might tend to reject. There are those people that are invited into a relationship with someone and they might just, uh, wait a minute. If you put yourself in Gomer's shoes, she has a past, she is a prostitute, there's all these things in her life. And it's probably hard for her to accept the grace that is being poured off on her. That's probably why in the story of Hosea and Gomer that Gomer runs off after having three kids. Eventually she runs off. She's trying to run from her past. You can't run from your past. That's the, the reality. All you can do with your past is bring your past to the cross. Bring your past to the gospel. Let God do his incredible work and he will take your brokenness and make something beautiful out of it. He'll, 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 he'll turn the ashes into something incredibly beautiful. He will shine his glorious light into your darkness. He will take your uh, ugliness, whatever it is, it'll be a part of a beautiful story. Just one chapter. And that's the story of Hosea and Gomer. She has just this one chapter in her life and it is a beautiful story that is being told. That's the reality. Go to the most broken people in the world today and you will probably find they will struggle with God's grace. Why would you love me or care about me? Why would God love me? Why would God want me? There is something there. And, and, and just think about that reality. I'm thinking about of another prostitute in scripture that Jesus encountered one time. And she came into him in Simon's house. He was a Pharisee, a religious man. She came in and sat down at his feet. And she's washing his feet with the hairs of her head and her tears and pouring out this perfume on him. And Simon, the religious man, is simply indignant that Jesus would let some such unbecoming behavior take take place in his home and Jesus would let this woman touch him and yet what had happened is there's this woman with this really hard heart this broken life and she is so humbled before the grace of God she just pours out her gratitude and her worship and and pray she just pours it out on Jesus something Simon did not even understand grace at times can be uncomfortable at least initially but once it takes root in us it can be amazing and transformative what takes place in our life so this the scandalous grace can be uncomfortable scandalous grace can also be risky grace can be risky indeed not always again but sometimes grace can be risky and it can be costly we talk about the scandalous grace of God and there is a picture painted in Hosea's story we would do well to to note it it looks like this God asks Hosea to marry someone who is is known that she's going to be unfaithful that she's going to run off on him where have we seen that story before 
How about Genesis chapter one, two, and three? And God creates the world, right? And God created this world in grace. None of us deserve to be created. None of us deserve to be on the earth. And God created us and built that beautiful world and that garden and put Adam and Eve in the garden, right? And he put them there and he knew full well what they would do. He knew full well they would reject him, that they would disobey him, that they would be kicked out of the garden. He knew full well that there was a time coming when he would have to what? Destroy the whole world with a flood. Now he didn't know how painful it would be. That's why he said in Noah's day, he regretted that he made mankind. It hurt so bad. He knew knew he'd have to do it. He knew that was part of what was coming, but he didn't know how painful deeply that would hurt so there is a risk involved in grace there certainly is a risk involved in grace there is a risk that uh, can come to our reputation grace can risk our reputation we know that in that in jesus day people talked about the reputation of jesus i wonder what they said in hosea's day when god's prophet married this prostitute you know what is interesting is that even god's reputation is sometimes question right god created us out of his kindness and goodness put us on this earth and then people come along and they say why how can god allow such suffering how does god allow such evil didn't didn't god create satan so isn't say isn't he responsible for evil why would god send someone to hell forever i mean even god's reputation gets put on the line simply because in grace he created this world and put us on it and gave us an opportunity to live in fellowship in harmony with him that's the reality. Grace can be risky. Now, here's the reality. There, there is a counter thing to this, and we were talking about this as elders just this past week. 1 Timothy 3.1, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, respectable. There is a thing where the elder in the church is supposed to be of good reputation, right? So there is a bit of a tension that exists here in this moment, a bit of a tension that goes back and forth. Paul says we should have a good reputation. Jesus put his reputation on the line. So what's the answer to that question? How do we navigate that? How about this one? 1 Thessalonians 5.22, abstain from every form of evil. The man in my opening story, Josh, did he kind of violate this, do you think? you think he maybe violated this a little bit? How do you handle this, this verse here and, and yet reach out with a scandalous grace? You've got to back up. You've got to read sometimes more of the context of a, a passage helps us. Here's what it says. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, uh, Rejoice all the time and then pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. How do we know in a situation like that Josh was in? How do you know? Well, you pray without ceasing. You don't quench the Holy Spirit in your life and you test everything and hold fast to what is good. You like Jesus. You let God set your agenda and you let God lead you. And yeah, we have to protect and we have to guard our reputation. We do. There's, there's a sense where we have to be people of good reputation. At the same time, we have to be people like Jesus who can reach out sometimes with a scandalous grace and put our reputation on the line. That's exactly what Jesus did. Grace can risk our reputation and build it at the same time. And you know what? Jesus had a reputation for what? For being a a person that reached out to the ugliest of people with a very scandalous grace. And yet he was also what? The most holy person to ever set foot on the planet Earth. Grace also can risk our being hurt. We can be hurt. Reach out in grace. You can easily be hurt. 
Let's be honest, Hosea was hurt. He reached out to Gomer, believed in her, built a family with her, and then she ran off and hurt him. It's like I said earlier, the people in this world that are the most broken will struggle with God's grace. And you can reach out in God's grace, and they can reject you. And if people reject you, can I just say that, just know they're not rejecting you. That first they're rejecting themselves many times. They're rejecting, they're just saying, hey, there's no way. God would ever give grace to me. Some people are so broken inside, they just feel so worthless that when you reach out in God's ears, they're rejecting themselves, not necessarily you. Sometimes there's a pride issue. We've got to show people there's a pride issue going on because sometimes people think, well, if I just try harder, I can eventually earn God's grace. No, you can never earn God's grace. You can never earn a right standing with God. Ephesians chapter two, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he had, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. It's, it's all grace. Grace is what saves us. The only way you have a relationship with God is through grace. You can never earn anything from God, with God. You just don't. You can earn a reward when you go to heaven someday. You can do that. You can earn a reward, but you can't earn anything that will get you into heaven or get you into a right relationship with God. And if someone comes to the point of just feeling so broken, so unworthy of God's grace, they're, they're, let them know they're at the right place because we need to know that. So don't take it personal. Sometimes people are rejecting themselves. Sometimes they're rejecting God. They're not rejecting you. I'm reminded of the shortest verse in the Bible. It said Jesus wept. Remember the story when it said Jesus wept? What was the context there? Jesus' good friend Lazarus has passed away, right? And he's been in the grave for three days and Jesus arrives at the home of Lazarus' brother, Mary and Martha. He arrives at their home. And he goes out to the grave and in moments he's gonna raise Lazarus from the dead and they're all gonna celebrate. But before he does that, what does Jesus do? It says Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? I think one of the reasons Jesus wept, and we don't get a clear indication in Scripture of why he cried, I think one of the reasons why is because of the stark reality of death. The stark reality of eternal death. That yes, Lazarus died, but he'll be, he'll be raised again. Jesus says in the same chapter, I'm the resurrection and the life. But there are those that will reject God's grace. And that's a risk God took when he created this world. He put people on the world, gave them a free will. And there are those that will reject the cross, reject the gospel, reject his grace. And Jesus looks into that grave and knows that there is some that will face eternal death because they're just going to reject God. And it breaks his heart and he weeps. Grace can be uncomfortable. Grace can be risky. And just know this, grace is always honest. So we talk about right uncompromising truth and radical grace lead to abundant life and it is true and we need to always understand that. Simply put, grace will speak the truth. John 1.14, and the word became flesh, 
Jesus, and dwell among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, Jesus was full of grace and truth. He was equal grace and equal truth. And I say this all the time, you don't compromise one for the other. You don't have to sacrifice grace for truth or truth for grace. And that's tough sometimes. How do you know the difference? I, again, I think you, you, you let the Holy Spirit, you like Jesus, you let, the, you let God the Father set your ministry agenda. You let him go before, you let him fill your heart, he will tell you. He will tell you. He will tell you. Grace and truth. The full reality of grace is that grace always tells the truth and, um, and that's just the reality. The full truth of God is that he is a God of grace. There is not one person he will not forgive. There are only those who will reject and refuse his forgiveness. You know, it's interesting. I have, over the years, done more and more funerals and it was last funeral I did was Tootie's brother, John. And I find myself becoming more and more um, confident and straightforward at, at a funeral of just giving the gospel. Of just laying it out there as clearly as I can. And this last time, Tootie's uh, son-in-law came to me and said, I never heard a more bold appeal open appeal for someone to respond to the gospel at a funeral. And, and, which, and I share that because there's always this tension that exists between being sensitive and being gracious at a funeral and just telling the truth. This is the gospel. This is heaven and hell. This is eternity. And putting it out there. And I say that because even there in my notes, I even, I even had a more, more direct way I was going to go at it. And at the time, you know, I just find myself backing off and well, you don't want to come on too strong. And there's always that. And even when someone comes up and says, boy, you are so bold at that. I'm thinking, yeah, I was even more bolder in my notes, but it didn't come out. Because it's such a tough, there's a tension there. But if we're really gracious to people, we're going to tell them the truth. We just are going to tell them the truth. That's the reality. You can't separate grace and truth. You can't. So if you're going to be gracious to somebody, you're going to tell them the truth. You simply will. The reality is the most gracious truth in all of the Bible, in all of the world, is the gospel. The gospel of eternity. The gospel of the cross, of the grace of God that he came and loved us and died for us. And let me, let me tell you the two, two of the greatest things you can tell anybody. Think about this. It's gracious to tell people that they have been lied to. It is gracious. If you, have a good fr- if you have a good friend and they're looking for a mechanic and maybe you went to a mechanic and the mechanic lied to you and ripped you off and, and you know he's got a reputation for lying to people and you got a good friend and they're going out looking for a mechanic and they're going to go to this whatever mechanic, Bob the mechanic, you know, and you know this truth, it would be very gracious and kind of you to say, hey, you need to stay away from Bob. He's not honest. He rips people off. There's something gracious about telling people you've been lied to. And I think in the story of, 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 of Hosea and Gomer is that Hosea buys Gomer back and then he tells her the truth. You need to know. You sold yourself, you got sold into slavery. You, got, you sold a bill of goods that isn't true. It's gracious to tell people that they have been lied to. And it's gracious to tell people who they are in Christ. It's just gracious to tell people who they are in Christ. And the reality is we are someone outside of Christ. And then if we are saved, if we respond to the gospel, we are a new creation in Christ, right? And and Christ comes to live in us. He becomes our identity. It is who we are. And it is the most gracious thing we can do is say, hey, you know what? If you come to Christ... I mean, if you come to, you'll be an entirely brand new person. You'll be an entirely brand new creation. You'll have an entirely brand new identity. 
You'll no longer be identified as a prostitute or whatever sin is in your life. You will be identified as, we sang today, a child of God because he will set you free. He will break the chains and set you free. Wow. Wow, wow, and wow. So grace, scandalous grace is uncomfortable, it is risky, it is always honest. And number four, grace invites us into God's story. It does. How affirming is Hosea to Gomer in this story, showing her her worth. Think about, think about the scandalous grace that's poured out into the life of Gomer and she is invited into God's story. And we're telling her story today, how many thousands of years later. And, and if you look through the royal lineage of Christ, you'll see this. Rahab, you know the story of Rahab, right? She was the spy who, who when Israel went in to, 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 the, to the, win the battle of Jericho and the walls come down, she's the one who, she helps them out, you know, Rahab. And, and she is in the royal lineage of Christ. Rahab is the spy. She was a Canaanite woman, not a Jew. She was a spy and she's in the royal lineage of Christ. And you know what Rahab's, pro, uh, what, what Rahab's profession was? She was a prostitute. That was, her, that was her profession. God has this thing in the Bible. You kind of follow it through that he kind of likes to affirm those that have that profession. Maybe because they're really looked down on. You got Bathsheba who was the product of the great sin of David, right? Bathsheba, she's in the royal lineage of Christ. It's just amazing who is in God's royal lineage in his royal line. There are people in there with questionable stories in, in the family tree of Jesus. We are invited. Grace invites us into God's story. Grace is a necessity to live out the gospel and to work out our salvation. We talk about it all the time. Work out what God has worked in. Work out your salvation. Live out the gospel. The gospel saves us, but the gospel is something we live out day after day after day. The, the, the reality that we live it out. There is a beautiful thing in this story that you can overlook. You know what the name of Hosea stands for? The name of Hosea equals salvation. And that's beautiful. And so here is Hosea offering salvation to Gomer. A scandalous grace invites us into God's story. And the reality is to live out the gospel and to work out our salvation, it takes grace. It takes a scandalous grace. In fact, I was just kind of thinking, I wonder if this isn't true. I wonder if this maybe isn't true, that the more scandalous the grace, the more we can engage a broken world, live out the gospel and work out our salvation. Maybe to reach the darkest places of the world and the most broken people, maybe it takes the most scandalous of, of grace. Maybe that's what it really does take for you and I. Let me give you one verse that shows this idea of living out the gospel. Put on, therefore, put on then as God's chosen ones, Paul writes in Colossians, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must, you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. There's a, that's what it looks like to live out, work out your salvation in your relationships. And in there, one, one word in there, forgiveness. Forgiveness is, is really interconnected to this idea of, of grace. We see it in the story here. It's just the reality in the gospel. Grace is interconnected with forgiveness. Just think about that reality. And think about how interconnected forgiveness and grace are, though, in terms of the gospel. Think about it this way. 
there is a grace that convicts us. God in his grace comes down and convicts us. Doesn't have to, but comes down and points out, hey, you are a sinner. The Holy Spirit comes on us, convicts us. You need, you need a savior. And so God in his grace offers us forgiveness. He didn't need to forgive us. If you forgive someone, that's an act of grace. People don't deserve your forgiveness, right? It's an act of grace. It's an undeserved favor. In my favor, to set myself free and to be a blessing to you, I'm gonna forgive you for what you did. And so grace offers forgiveness and then when God offers us forgiveness, we respond, our faith response, we respond in faith. Bible tells us that salvation is by grace through faith and when we respond in faith, we are what? We are made righteous. We sang it today. I will boast in the righteousness of Christ, not my own. I'm counted righteous by faith. It's all it's salvation throughout the entire Bible. Faith leads to righteousness and then that's what saves me. I'm made righteous, I'm redeemed, I'm reconciled, I'm regenerated, uh, you know, on and on. Justified, filled with the Holy Spirit, sealed by the Holy Spirit, all those things take place. It's all an act of grace. Grace starts the process, grace ends the process. All we do in the middle is respond. That's the reality. Let me, let me wrap up here today. I want to kind of bring this back in for a landing then. I'm going to show you in a minute really this relationship in Scripture we often don't think about, most scandalous relationship that we often miss. But let me, let me go back here. We talked a while back about Jesus. So he hung, he hung out with the most scandalous people, right? The prostitutes and the drunkards and the, and, and the tax collectors who were thieves. He hung out with the really dark people of society. And we said that that tends to, to shock a lot of people. And we look at that and we think, wow, look who he hung out with. It shocked people. Well, I want to give you a verse. I want you to look at a verse. We looked at this earlier. I want you to read this verse. I'm going to read it. We'll look at it. I want you to process it for a second and see if you can figure out, if you can connect the dots here a minute, okay? And the word became flesh, Jesus, and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, we're shocked, right? Jesus comes and he hangs out with the prostitutes and the drunkards and the worst people of society, right? We're shocked by that. What's this verse telling us? Do you get the scandalous grace, the scandalous nature of God's grace in this verse right here? The scandal of who Jesus hung out with can't compare with the scandal of his coming to earth at all. The one of glory left heaven and came to earth. Who cares who he hung out with? Who cares who we hung out with on earth? He came to earth. That's the scandal. That's the thing that should rock your world and my world every day. It's like, wow. He would come to our broken down world. And let me show you something in scripture. You know the most scandalous relationship in all of the Bible, the most scandalous, scandal, the most scandalous of Jesus' relationships is his relationship, and I want you to all say it together when I put it on the screen, okay? Is his relationship with me. Right. Because somehow we tend to think, yeah, there's these broken people over there, and there's the prostitutes, and there's the drunkards, and there's the thieves, and they're aware of there, and I'm over here a lot closer to God. And yes, I am closer to God. If I've received him as my savior and he's my identity, I'm very close to him. But apart from God, you know what? I'm much closer to the prostitutes and the drunkards than I ever am to God. I'm not anywhere close to God. 
God is so holy. He is so pure. He is so full of glory. He is so righteous and I am anything but. We are an eternity, an infinite eternity away from God until Christ came into our world and then came into our heart. And the next thing you know, we're way over here and we're with God and we're telling those prostitutes and those drunkards and the worst people of society, hey, you know what? It doesn't matter how bad you are. If I can get here, you can get here. You can get here. That's the scandalous nature of God's grace. So I gotta wrap up with this. A couple minutes over here. Let me just leave you with this. There are some questions. You can walk through them later. We've got to go back to this restaurant. So here is Josh. I kept prodding about her life. Josh is at this restaurant. I kept prodding about her life and found out that because her mom passed away, she takes care of her seven-year-old sister. I then asked Annette what she liked to do for fun. She said, I don't like work, but I like having a customer. At least then I'm not alone. I don't like being alone. Because of travel and work, I have no friends. After our food came to the table, she asked my permission to get it to go so her sister could eat some of it. I agreed even after she refused to let me buy her sister her own meal. Then I remembered the market I walked through earlier. I asked her if she and her sister had enough clothes. She said no, so I offered to buy her clothes, and she excitedly agreed. My, expense in the market, my experience in the market was very different this time. Before every vendor called out to me, Sir, sir, would you like a shirt? Would you like a camera? Whatever the vendor was selling was, was to be called out to me, but not this time. Vendors saw me with this woman and looked away, embarrassed. It was a lot quieter than before. We eventually found jeans and shirts, and for $32, she was able to get a few outfits for her and her sister, including a brand new pair of shoes. As we continued to talk and get to know each other, my heart continued to break. It broke for the way people looked at her. It broke for the way she looked at herself, and it broke for the way people looked at us together. People assumed that they knew what was going on. They looked at her with contempt for what she does and what she represents. But I know the truth. I know that this woman isn't just a prostitute. She is an heir. I know that this precious woman is a princess and the king of kings died for her. I know she is worth more than $20 for four hours and that she is treasured beyond belief. I know she is valued and loved to an extent I will only fully comprehend in heaven. After she got her outfit, I gave her a few extra dollars and we parted ways. It was only then that Annette finally believed that I didn't want anything. When I told her I had to go, I could see shock on her face. Her expression showed her disbelief in what just happened. I saw her walk away happy to find her sister with new clothes in one hand and a meal in the other. I realized this is is what Jesus does for us. He sees us in a way that no one else may. He gives us more than new clothes and a meal. He gives us a new name. We sell ourselves to the things in this world all the time, but he takes us and buys us back. He loves us with a love that cannot be described. We can more accurately demonstrate this love through actions than words. Go show people his love today. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for Josh being sensitive to your spirit so that I could tell his story today and illustrate what you want to see in our lives. That there is this tension of going out and giving a scandalous grace away that is uncomfortable. It is risky, always truthful. But it, is, it, is the, it invites us into your story and there's no better story to be a part of. Teach us how to navigate that tension of having a good reputation and yet putting our reputation on the line to share the grace of God with the most broken, most hurting, most vulnerable people in our society. And God, help us understand. Help us really come to terms today 
with the scandalous relationship that is your relationship with each one of us in a personal sense. Thank you, Lord. Will you pour your blessing and grace on each one as we leave today? May they go home filled with your joy, filled with your grace, and overflowing with your spirit. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Amen.